Good afternoon and welcome to Emmett Audio. So, there's been an ongoing conversation on Instagram for the last day about um, well about the the economics of craft I suppose that's the way to talk about it and about the way that you can easily find yourself in a situation where you feel like your work is not valued at the level that you want it to be valued at or need it to be valued at in order for it to make financial sense for your, you to pursue. And um, I've shared a bit of what I think on Instagram. I encourage you to go check out that post uh, with my pyramid diagram on it. Um, but it made me realize that I haven't talked on here for uh, a while about how I feel about pricing my work. And given that I'm giving this talk in a couple weeks, um, I figured I might as well lay it out here as a, as a way of practicing saying what I, what I have found to be helpful for myself. Hey. Um, so first a little history when I started out carving spoons I was not online so I was not comparing my work either in terms of quality or in terms of price point with anyone else uh, not locally not globally nothing I just had an innate gut sense of well how much is it worth and so my first spoons, I was selling them for $10 a piece because back then, those early spoons, I think I was making them in like half an hour. And I thought, okay, you know, $20 an hour. I wasn't trying to sell a ton of them, but it was you know, $20 an hour to me at whatever, 29 uh, felt like you know, it felt like what I, what I felt like I was worth at that time. And frankly, you know, we were really poor. And so it felt like a, a good amount of money to make from it. And then as I started exploring more online about the spoon carving community, I started to get an inflated sense of how much my work should be worth. I was reading a lot of people's uh, comments on, on blogs and on their social media posts about selling their work and how they, you know, they, you know, a large part of what they did was educate people on why their work was worth as much as they wanted to get for it, and I started trying to sell my own work um, for more. And at first, it was just a, it was, it was a modest increase of, uh, well, maybe not modest, but I, you know, I went from ten to twenty dollars, and I was still selling basically everything I wanted to sell at Christmas. I, you know, but we're talking like 20 spoons. But to me, that was like, it was, you know, it was like, maybe it was 30 spoons. But it was, you know, it was like a month's rent back then. Um, you know, or half of the old farmhouse that we were renting. I was like, great, you know, that covers one month's rent. Awesome. It's Christmas. I can sell stuff at my Christmas tree farm and easy peasy. And then I got a little deeper and I and I wanted to quit a part-time seasonal job and 
thought that I could replace that income with income from selling spoons that I'd carved. And so I, you know, looking around at people who seemed like they were making a living at it, and I was really getting a, a sense of like, wow, you know, if I, it's so tempting when you run the numbers, when you're crunching numbers like that, you're trying to, extra, you know, you're trying to reach some goal of like, you know, if I can make whatever, $8,000 and I can, you know, I can replace this part of my income with that, this new thing. And, you know, so you're trying to, you're crunching numbers and you're like, well, you know, if I make this many at $20 a spoon, you know, then I make 8,000. But if I, you know, I have to make way fewer at, at $30 a spoon. So you're always tempted to like push that limit with the price. And part of what is tempting you is that you see other people presenting themselves online as selling their work at that price point. And we have very little data. It's very hard. You have to look between the lines at when somebody is selling you something from their social media feed, say, at a certain price. That does not mean that they have been successful at making a, a living at that price point. It just means that that's what they're trying to sell their work for. And you have no idea do they do they sell like that, but then put everything massively on sale at Christmas time? Do they, uh, are, you know, are they happy? Are they meeting their goals? Are they, you know, feel like they're growing as a craftsperson? Do they feel like they're uh, have a growing customer base? Do they have a returning customer base? Like you don't know any of this stuff. All you know is the price point and what they have been able to convince you to feel about them through the way they present themselves online. And those are powerful tools, but they're insufficient. And so I, like many people I assume, found myself um, asking way too much for my work to the point where basically I had almost no sales. And, I, and the few spoons that did sell, I felt guilty about because even though I felt like they were as good, if not better, than some of the biggest names out there whose spoons I bought at these steep price points and then they arrived and I thought, really? Really? I feel like I'm making better spoons than this. Well, my spoons were as good, if not better, on, at a technical level, on one technical level than these. But they felt overly priced to me because, and the reason they felt that way was because my own internal sense of my time and what it was worth was set at a certain level because, well, because frankly, because my time was not full. And this is the biggest thing that people miss, which is that until your time is full, you don't actually have a sense of what your time is worth because, well, because you have free time. And so, you know, you could potentially take less, or you could potentially take more, but, but you just, you, you don't have, uh, there's no internal logic for, uh-oh, my usual dog walking spot clearly has other people in it. Hmm. Well, so there's no internal logic for um, why you would charge this price instead of that price for your work. Okay, back to my story then. So, I gotta turn the car around. There we go, turn the car around. 
Um, so, well, I wonder if these people are, I wonder if they're just here for a wedding or what. Um, so, okay, so you don't know, you don't know what to charge for your work because you can't trust that what you see other people charging for their work is working for them, let alone will it work for you. And but I did at the time because I didn't understand this and I was I ended up charging way too much for my work and sales completely dried up. And I went a year and a half before things really started to get easier and basically I went about nine months with uh, almost no sales and um, I'm just going to park and walk on this quiet road. Um, and when I would, even when I would sell stuff to people, I would feel guilty about it because it felt overpriced to me. And I would feel like, you know, they would get the spoon and they would feel disappointed in the same way that I got these spoons from other people and I felt disappointed. And you know, that makes total sense in the sense that, um, here dogs, we're gonna, we're gonna walk along the road here. Uh, this, this makes total sense in the sense that there was no internal logic to why I was charging what I was charging. Okay, dogs, come on, come here. Come here. Good girl. Hold up. Hold up. Come here, Maisie. Good girl. Come on. You got this. Good girl. Okay. Alright, dogs. Here. Hold you on the leash like this. Bear with me, guys. Sorry about the delay. Alright, come on. We're walking on this side of the road. This side of the road. There we go. Um, okay, so, so at a certain point, I came to understand these, these things. I came to just sort of, I, I reached, I reached critical discomfort with my own prices and I decided to change things. And I thought as long as I'm changing things, let's change things way down to where I know things will sell. And so I cut my prices in half. And so instead of charging whatever it was, like $35 for a cooking spoon and $25 for an eating spoon, um, which were my prices last year, I started charging 12 and 18. So literally in half, less than half. And what happened was that all of my work began to sell and sell fast. So I would carve something. At this point, I was just trying to carve one spoon each day. And, you know, I'd 
I'd originally thought like, great, if I carve a spoon and sell it each day and I'm getting 25 to $35 for it, I make this amount of money. But then I hadn't made any money in nine months from this. And I thought, this has to change. Even if I'm getting half the money that I thought I would from it, you know, I just need, I need momentum. And I went from nothing selling to posting things on Instagram and things selling within five minutes. Like it was a feeding frenzy. And it built my reputation at the same time as it built uh, my skill because all of a sudden I had a reason, excuse me, to carve every single day. And I had a reason to, um, to post on Instagram and I had people interacting with me and excited about what I was doing and appreciated it. Like it got all the wheels spinning. So even though I was making way less money, that didn't matter to me because I had momentum. And I think this is the thing that when you're starting out, you need to get your foot in the door somehow. And almost always the foot you get in your door in the door is that you're willing to take less for your work than you will down the line. And you get to a point where it's just, you know, it's you've, you've charged a small enough amount that you find a buyer. And this is the thing that a lot of the conversation that's happening online, right, in the last couple of days has, has missed in my point of view, which is that a sale requires a buyer and a seller. And so it's always a dance between what the buyer is willing to pay and what the seller would like to get. And we forget this in a society where we don't haggle. Um, and I hate haggling. But, you know, what haggling reminds you of is that it's, it's two-way street. And you got to give some and you gotta, in, order to, in order to get some. And the thing I don't like about haggling is that it feels like it artificially jacks up the price in order to then be haggled down, right? So it's, that's what I don't like about it. But it does serve as a useful reminder that it's a relationship that every sale is a relationship where you have found a point of commonality between how much you value your work and how much other people value your work. And what the conversation lacks right now, I think, is an understanding of that because what the understanding you get from that is uh, that price is just a tool that you can use to increase or decrease demand. Um, you can lower your price to get more demand. And should you uh, increase your price, you will decrease your demand. But that, that can be fine if you have less time than you used to, or you s simply all of your time is, is more than taken up with requests. Okay, so going back to my story. I began to sell every single thing I sold, every single thing I made. And so I started making two things a day, three things a day. And everything was selling. And then I started to get people asking for things. And, uh, you know, so here's a good lesson for you. At that time on Instagram, it was common practice among the big names in the spoon carving scene. I assume within other places as well, that people learn this through mimicry. To announced that a piece was sold at the bottom of a post as soon as it sold. And so, you know, people were throwing things on Instagram to sell it. And then as soon as it had sold, they would 
edit the post to say sold. Well, I looked at that and I thought, well, that's just turning off the switch in somebody's brain that's willing to have a conversation with you because they like the thing. So I never did that. And what resulted from that was a whole bunch of conversations where people reached out about something that I'd already sold and they said, hey, is that thing still available? And I'd say, it's not, but I can make you one like it. And that conversation allowed for me to have my first wait list where I started to have more work or work that was previously asked for. And so then I entered a phase where I had uh, for one or two years, maybe a, uh, some combination of stuff that I made on speculation and sold and stuff that was commissioned and sold. And every single thing that I made, I took pictures of and I posted and I talked about because what I found was that sharing your previous work leads to your next piece of work. If you don't share it, it can't lead to it. And the more you space it out, the more uh, swings you give yourself at the plate, the, the more eyeballs will see it and the greater a chance that it will lead to sales down the, down the line. But you, you have to share your work in order for new people to see your work and, and come across it. Um, and so I started having a waiting list. And then after a couple of years, it shifted to entirely waiting list. And so then I was talking about how, you know, well, what I talk about now, you know, these are all made to order. If you would like something, uh, reach out and let me know and I'll get you on the list. And I've, I've tried to maintain essentially as long a waiting list as I can get while at the same time increasing my prices a few dollars each across the board each year. Um, that goes for spoon blanks as well, which is, um, they started out at $3 per because I didn't know where to, what to charge for them. And I thought, oh, let's just start low. And now they're $9 per. So those have tripled in their value to me over the course of the six years or so that I've done spoon blanks. I'll get back to spoon blanks in a minute because they, they're an example of uh, something else about pricing your work and making a living doing this. So I started having a wait list and you know, essentially what the wait list gave me was ultimate efficiency because I knew that everything I made was already sold. And so it, it eliminated the uncertainty of, and the inefficiency of making stuff that may or may not sell. And it just meant that everything I make is sold. And I can think about, you know, it's not kind of nice. I can think about the person who I'm making it for as I'm making it for them. I mean, I don't just like sit and meditate about them, but I think that that helps. That, that's good. And And, and, and most importantly, the wait list gives me the completely logical economic rationale for why my prices should increase year over year, because I have all the work that I can handle, which means that it would be irrational for me or for anyone to assume that I should keep my prices the same. Um, because I just, you know, I still have as much demand as I can handle. And, and, uh, and that's been really important because it means that, that year over year, my standard of living has gotten better. And I've gotten to the point where we're no longer poor. Um, you know, we're comfortable, comfortably middle-class, uh, 
and um, and while I will say that you know it's important to note that spoon carving is what I do ten months out of the year, but for many years it it you know was a relatively small fraction of my income, and the Christmas tree farm that we have was the larger portion of the income. Well, now that's flipped, and I make more spoons, more from spoon carving than I do from Christmas trees, and we're approaching two to one. Uh, but everything that I'm saying about spoons applies to my Christmas tree farm as well, from starting with low prices and slowly increasing them to, you know, uh, mistakes of, of, um, mistakes that I've made along the way. It all applies to the Christmas trees as well. And the irony is that I learned the lesson one time and then still had to learn it again with the spoons. Um, okay, so, a little turn around at this dirt road up here. So, hold on, I'm gonna wait for this one more car to pass. So this gets to uh, another mistake that I've seen craftspeople do over and over again, which is when they feel like they need to take a break, they announce to the world that they're closing their books. Right, they're saying, I'm no longer accepting orders. I need to, you know, for right now, I need to focus on this other thing that I do. And, you know, I will come, you know, I'll be back when I'm ready to sell spoons again. And that, to my mind, um, is misunderstanding the customer relationship. Which is that the customer, especially in today's day and age, where it's easier than ever to find us, um... It's easier than ever to find out about you at any time because of our electronic presences online. You know, a customer could find out about you tomorrow after you've closed your books. And, you know, well, then they find out that your books are closed and their interest in you evaporates. They go somewhere else. And instead, they, you know, if you hadn't announced that, you hadn't closed your books you then have a customer reach out to you and then you have a conversation you say you know what i'm i'm uh you don't even tell them look i'm taking a break man you keep that to yourself you say i'm booking whatever six months out wow okay well that now makes you seem like you're quite busy which you are right you've decided to take six months off and rebalance your life you're busy doesn't matter if you're busy doing the thing that you're... Right? You don't have to have your nose to the grindstone every day to be busy. We're all busy with all sorts of stuff. But whatever. Maybe six months out is won't work for them. They say, yeah, peace out. I'm going to go somewhere else. But maybe they say, great, that works for me. I'm not in any rush. I really love your work and I want to support you. Well, now you have a wait list that starts six months out. Well... You can announce that to the world and say, I have a wait list, it's six months out. Let me know. And yet people miss this opportunity. Instead, they shut off the valve, the, the faucet of interest in their work by saying, my books are closed. That's the death knell. 
how are you going to spin that back up again? You know, people's attention go off somewhere else. That's fine, and you can lament the fact, but the, the truth is, is that you made a critical tactical error in human psychology that led to the drying up of demand for your work. And I see this again and again and again, not just in this particular way, but in other small particular ways that people, they, it's like the logic of, it's like they just make an assumption of, oh, I should, I should tell you when an item is sold. And they don't, it's like they're thinking as though they're still a customer you know, and don't want to have their time wasted. And, and instead of thinking like a, like, well, like a craftsperson who wants to make a living doing their thing, like a business owner, because that's what you are. So that gets me to another point that's been raised about uh, all of this stuff, which is, uh, <laughs> I've been told that I'm a little bootstrappy about this, meaning that I'm enthusiastically telling people that it is within your power to make these changes and to make it work for you. And that, you know, it would be um, somehow disrespectful to say that to, you know, a union worker or someone working for minimum wage, that they could change their circumstances instead of telling them that, uh, instead of saying, yeah, it's the other person's, it's the, it's the society's fault. And I don't understand this because even fundamentally, if you're telling somebody that it's society's fault, but if you band together, you can change your circumstances, you're telling them that you can change your circumstances. And if you're telling them you can change your circumstances by banding together as a union, well, you can also change your circumstances by making different decisions about how you run your business. And if you're a craftsperson, even if you're not doing it full time for a living, you have a business. Which means that you have, I mean, the beautiful thing about making a living in craft is that you are in control. You are free and independent. And you, if you don't like how things are working out, you can try something different. And no one's going to tell you otherwise. And I, I haven't had a job for somebody else in a long time. But I can tell you, the last jobs that I had, there was a lot of people telling me what to do and how to do it. Right? Somebody else was making those decisions. I was just enacting them. So yeah, kind of hard to bootstrap yourself within that job when you're not given that freedom or independence to do so. Now, of course, I believe that you could bootstrap yourself outside of that and do an end run around the job, which is what I did. But I also believe that the beautiful thing about being a craftsperson is that you can make these choices for yourself. You can decide to play the long game and charge less money for your work in order to get your foot in the door. You can charge less money for your work in order to give yourself as much practice as you can possibly get. If you can understand that it's not just how good you are, it's how good you are getting compared to how good all of your peers are getting. And like it or not, the quality of your work is going to be judged against, uh, well, by the, it's going to be judged against the quality of all the other work that the person who is interested in your work is exposed to. 
So if somebody is exposed to the quality of spoon carving within the spoon carving scene, and that quality is ever increasing because tools are getting better, techniques are being shared more, people are having more and more years of practice. Well, if you are not practicing to a point where you are getting better faster than your peers, then you are getting better less fast than your peers. You are sinking down within the relative, people's relative understanding of the quality of your work. This is a really harsh thing to say. But anyone who's ever been at the cutting edge of something understands that there's something very special about being at the cutting edge of a field where you are pushing the boundary of what is possible. And, and in order to get to that place, you need to, well, you, you need to put in the time to build up your skill to a level where you're able to do this. You know, I think we understand this and appreciate this in music. We understand that if you want to be, you know, so great at guitar that you can do it professionally, you need to practice way more than somebody who just wants to be able to play some tunes on guitar on the couch, right? You need to put in the time. You need to figure out the strategies in your life that's going to help you put in the time. And we don't think uh, there's something wrong with that. We just think like, wow, that's so cool that somebody put in the time. And, you know, and like they have pushed the envelope and now we're like, oh my God, Jimi Hendrix, how did you do what you did? Right? And there's talent in there as well, which is awkward for us all to talk about because some people are more talented at certain things. And that's just because we all have our own strengths and weaknesses. And I don't think you need to be the most talented in order to have a successful business. I do think you need to be uh, thoughtful about how you structure your business so that it builds on itself year over year. And this gets me to my final point before I get back to the car, which is that everybody has different life circumstances and there's more than one way to skin the cat. If you are realizing that you're not earning enough money doing this thing that you love to pay the mortgage. Well, maybe you should reassess your mortgage. Maybe you should reassess where you live. Maybe you should reassess the other parts of your life and your other expenses and see if you can solve the problem that way. Plenty of people do, you know, I, as editor of Spoonosaurus magazine, I get to interview people from all over the world who have made spoon carving part of what they do for a living. And I get to ask them how they do it. And one of the cool things I've learned is that everybody does it differently. Everybody's circumstances are different and those circumstances change over time. And so even if they've figured it out in the present moment, that doesn't mean that it's gonna keep working out for them. They're gonna to have to keep making dynamic, fluid choices that react to the situation that is very specific to them and what they need. And part of the trap of social media is that we see very little of that of people's lives. 
and instead we tend to look at people and see what they're charging and see you know what they're putting out there about their life and we think yeah i could do that too and we don't ask ourselves well what are the circumstances of their life you know because um you are going to need to figure out a business that works for your life and you're going to need to uh probably be willing to either make some compromises in the business to what you're doing or compromises in your life and quite possibly both one of the biggest compromises to my business was agreeing to make spoon blanks for somebody else right up until that point when somebody asked me hey you know i'm like traveling around in a van in utah any chance you'll sell me some blanks and i said uh i guess so Up until that point, I thought of myself as a spoon carver, not a spoon blank maker for other people. And I would have turned my nose up at that. Well, it turns out that making spoon blanks, even at the lower rates than I sell them for now, it's a great business model. It plays to my strengths. I have a lot of good quality wood. I live close to the post office and I can go there quite easily without having to wait in line or having it be an onerous thing. It forced me to improve upon my weak link, which was axing at the time. And it made me really good at this thing by giving me lots of practice. And it proved to be an important pillar financially of my business. So that probably somewhere between probably around 60% of the money from the spoon carving business is from selling blanks to people. And it's a lot easier on my body to do a mix of blanks and carving than it does to just carve. That's the hardest thing on my body is to just carve. So it was easier on my body, I make more money, and I have this client base of recurring customers who love the fact that I'm selling them spoon blanks because it feeds their habit and then they're excited about it and they, you know, they subscribe to Spoonosaurus and they're interested in the book and it feeds into all these other things. But if you had asked me, you know, when I was starting out, I would have said, no, I don't want to do that. I'm just a spoon carver, man. That's all I want to do. I don't want to do that. Well, guess what? I also want to make a living working for myself and it turns out that this is a great fit because it allows me to spend much of my time doing what I love to do. And then when I'm not doing that, when I'm making blanks instead, I'm getting deliberate practice working on the skill that directly ties into what it is I want to do. Now, one of the things that I, one of the things that allowed that to be true is that I very deliberately chose to, um, to continue doing my spoon blanks uh, by hand, only using an axe. And part of that was because I didn't have a bandsaw and didn't have a space to have a bandsaw. But also I really wanted to keep it as practice for me. If I started using a bandsaw, I'd get good at using a bandsaw. And 
choosing to only use an axe meant that I got good at using an axe, even though it was harder on my body and probably less efficient. It fed this other ambition, which was to become really good at this thing that I was not good at. And so I think we do have a duty to ourselves to make sure that when we are making these compromises, that you're not just saying, okay, I'm compromising, so all of my goals go out the window, I'll just do whatever for money. But no, you say, instead you say, yeah, I could do this if I get to do it in my own way, in a way that feeds my other goals, I could do that as part of my business. And I think if more people figured that stuff out, they would be able to find, create a business for themselves that really worked for them. And, and I think the, the issue becomes that not everything you try is gonna really resonate with you. You know, I've tried selling a number of things over the years that ultimately, Willa, hop in, hop in. Good girl. That ultimately were not the direction I wanted to move in. Hold on, I gotta put this phone down. Come on, Maisie. Come on, Willa. So, I think it's fairly easy, even if the thing that you're trying is related to the thing that you really want to be doing, it doesn't mean necessarily that it actually that it actually creates uh, the career that you want to have. You know, I, I have sold a number of tools and dish towels with the spoon prints on them and, you know, things over the years. And I've always tried to tie them in so that they build some skill with me. You know, when I, when I do these template sheets um, that I used to do more of, but, you know, now I only get an occasional request for one. But I insisted on drawing each one by hand rather than getting a bunch printed because I didn't want to just become somebody who monetized, you know. What the heck was that sound? Huh. I didn't want to become somebody who monetized uh, something but then was like just selling merch you know that didn't feel like the life I wanted to have and I didn't feel like I wanted to be pushing merch I wanted to have the story of me practicing a craft and getting better and better at it because that's the thing that I ultimately felt was compelling to me but I also understood that, that would be compelling to people in the long run as opposed to this merch is cool I'm gonna buy it now but then I don't actually have much emotional connection to it or, or you know reason to come back and I think people can get themselves sort of stuck into ruts that have worked out financially but that they don't actually want to do you know teaching is a big one for people right it's for a while you can probably make way more money teaching than you can actually doing the thing depending on you know the level and the price point that you're operating at but you can also burn out real fast on teaching I've done a lot of teaching I know, and I and I pulled in my horns on teaching. I had spent one whole year where I was traveling around to craft schools and teaching, you know, 
groups up to 12 people to carve spoons and it was exhausting and I, and I did not love it and I did not enjoy it enough to continue doing it. But I did enjoy teaching one-on-one for several more years after that and then I, I stopped during the pandemic and, um, and poured that time into writing the book Greenwood Spoon Carving. And we'll see if I start teaching again. I don't, I don't know, you know, like that. It was, it was a good fit for that time in my life, but it's not a good fit for the time in my life now, which is just to say that like everybody's at a unique point in their life and what, what is a good fit for them and what they're willing to do and what price point they can get for it and how that adds up into a, a livelihood is all completely unique to you in this moment in time. And I guess the thing that I would encourage you to recognize is that none of that is about saying, you know, the world doesn't recognize handcrafted stuff anymore, and if only it valued work like I do more, then I would be able to do this for a living. It, none, of, none of what I'm saying is reliant upon that being true. Instead, it's looking clear-eyed at what's actually going on and what the opportunities actually are right now for you and figuring out how to make your life work so that you have the life you want. We can all get the life that we want and what life we want is going to change over time, but all of us can take steps towards it. Whether or not you get there is going to depend a lot on your follow-through and your cleverness and your, you know, your uh, honesty and your skill and you know a whole bunch of things like it's not an easy it's not an easy game to play but we can all be working towards it and and I think that that attitude of it is within my power to make this work for me I think that that attitude is the most helpful thing that you can bring to bear in this circumstance and the attitude of the world no longer values the thing and and uh, I wish people valued me more that's not helpful to you or to other people but certainly not to you I really do believe that you can make a living doing just about anything but the circumstances under which you will make a living and how much that living is and you know whether you are in the right place for that to be you whether you're willing to make the right sacrifices and change your life in the right ways and continue with something and learn the right skills whether that's going to be you is another thing altogether and i think success is when you figure out the overlap in that venn diagram what the market wants, what you want, and what you're uniquely skilled or prepared to do. And it could be many things. Thank you for listening. This was maybe the longest podcast I've ever done, and this is probably the most comprehensively I've ever talked about all of this. I really appreciate your time, and I'll talk more briefly tomorrow. Until then.